Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? We're all different. Every single one of us is different. And we all have different desires and wants and needs. But collectively as a human race, we really want to have connection with one another. And part of this connection is deep intimacy. If you were like me and loved watching the heartwarming TV series Love on the Spectrum, you are going to adore today's guest, as I'm so thrilled to sit down with Jodie Rogers, the therapist that features on the show. Jodie is a qualified sexologist, counsellor and special education teacher. She has worked within the education and community sectors globally and has extensive experience working with people with a disability and diverse neurology across her lifespan. Jodie established her private practice, Birds and Bees, after 30 years of working within the education, disability and sexuality fields. Birds and Bees specialises in delivering counselling services and workshops for people with a disability with a focus on sexuality, sexual health and relationships, as well as delivering training for parents, carers and professionals to raise the community's capacity in this sometimes tricky area. It was an amazing show and it continues on. Netflix has picked it up and is now showing a US version, but I am thrilled to have Jody on the show. Let's dive into this. What will be a fantastic conversation. Jody, what an absolute delight to get to sit with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle. Good to be here. Jody, if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I'd love people to talk, you know, I'd love to break the myths that exist around sexuality and disability. That would be my greatest wish. Well, it's unsurprising giving the work you do, but uh, I love this topic and I think it's going to be so interesting where we go to with this conversation. But tell us more about why this is a topic you're uh, very passionate about. I think for me, because I've spent my whole life working sort of in the disability field or with people with disabilities. And what I started noticing across my lifespan of being with people is that once people with a disability were leaving school, there was a lot of emphasis put onto employment and accommodation and day-to-day sort of skills. But for me, one of the most important things in our life is relationships and a component of relationships is sexuality or our self-identity is sexuality. So that was one thing. And I could see that there was a missing link going on for many people with a disability not to have access to services to support that knowledge base. But the second is that statistically, people with a disability are much higher ratio of people to be sexually assaulted. But also on the other hand, there's a higher ratio of people who have limited sexuality education that can get caught up in the judicial system for offending behaviour because they haven't had the education. Around, you know, simple things, or not simple, it's complex, but, you know, consent or, you know, that's massive topic. So for me, yeah, it was really just thinking about people with a disability unlike every other human on the planet and we're all sexual beings and we all possess our own sexuality and I think that, 
as a society, there was two components. One, that people with a disability were seen as being asexual. And so they were provided with the education and knowledge around sexuality, which has left them very, very vulnerable. Yeah, when you describe it like that and talk about it, it makes so much more sense. And I guess for people that don't work in that space, you it's hard to kind of understand this element. I mean, you have been working in this area for, is it 30 years or so? Yeah, I've been working with people with a disability for 30 years. And then along the way, sort of got more and more involved in doing sex ed for people with disability and then just wanted to put my money where my mouth was. So I went to university to get a master's degree in sexual health counselling. And so then combined, you know, I've got really weird qualifications where I have postgraduate qualifications in working with people with a disability or neurodivergent autistic people. And then on the other hand, have postgraduate qualifications in counselling and specifically in sexual health counselling. So it was just combining those two areas together. And so I set up a private practice specifically in this area to provide counselling for any person with a disability um, about seven years ago. I thought at the time, I thought, oh, I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring and see if there's any need. I didn't even know whether there was a need for it. So I thought, I'll give it six months. I'll give it six months and see whether it works or not. And I have never looked back. Amazing. Which says a lot, though, as you say, you know, there mustn't be too many people that do the work that you do, I imagine. And I think the interesting part is around a show like Love on the Spectrum and how that's raised the profile of like yourself and the work in the space and, you know, really about the myths that you, you want to talk about and the, the stigma associated with um, sexuality and disability. So I'd love to hear more about that from you and how that kind of came about, but also how you help. I'm imagining you help not only the people with disabilities, but also those that, you know, their family members or those that work with people with disabilities as well to educate them. I imagine that needs more work. Yeah, definitely. Because I think that there's been a long-held historical belief that if you have a disability, so I'm talking even physical disability, which is astounding to me, but, you know, a physical disability or a cognitive disability or acquired brain injury, that somehow when you have a disability, then it means that you are not a sexual being you know you all of a sudden it's like oh you know well obviously sex wouldn't be important to you or the thought that relationships wouldn't even be important to you which is astounding to me but you know there was there's sort of been historical perspective where many people and if I'm speaking specifically about people with cognitive disability at the minute there's either a belief that somebody with a cognitive or developmental disability they're either completely asexual that sex has never entered their mind that they're not a sexual person or that they're completely oversexed. So, you know, that there's those extremes that we've had as a, a thought and understanding of people with a cognitive disability. Or, you know, it's so fascinating to many people, they might meet someone who's in a wheelchair and their first thought will be, well, can this person have sex? Look, it's kind of a, a thought of just because somebody has a disability that in some shape or form that sex and sexuality is not an integral part of their world is so far from the truth, so far. So for me, that's a really big myth that needs to be to be shattered. And of course, just because we're all different, every single one of us is different, and we all have different desires and wants and needs, but collectively as a human race, we really want to have connection with one another. And part of this connection is deep intimacy 
you know, physical intimacy or relationship intimacy. And for me, this uphill belief that just because you are different, think differently, communicate differently, move differently, that that makes you not desire or want what the rest of the human planet desires and wants. It's just astounding to me, completely astounding. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. Like I'm trying to grapple with how the work that you must do must be so complex as well because working, as you say, even with people with cognitive disabilities, every case would be very different. And so how do you work with someone like when they first come in and, you know, having one-to-ones and understanding some of their challenges or that education piece, what you said at the start around the um, piece about consent is so important. And how do you go about educating people with disabilities around that space? Well, I don't know whether people know, but it's actually a human right. So in Australia, we've actually ratified the Convention of Rights for People with Disability. And a component of those rights actually says that every person, not just people with disabilities, all of us, have the right to sexuality and relationship education in a way that is understandable and accessible to all of us. So I'm literally just trying to uphold that human right on a daily basis. Every person that comes to see me, you know, when they come in the the door, of course, a lot of people are quite freaked out because you imagine if you went and saw a sex therapist or a sexologist, very vulnerable when we talk about these things and and a lot of people... I'm I'm vulnerable when I go to the dentist, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've never been to a sexologist, but you've got me intrigued. (laughs) The first part is like any type of counselling situation where you're trying to work out what is that person's specific needs, you know, what is the the goal for them, what are they wanting to achieve in that therapy session. But for many people that I work with, particularly with cognitive or intellectual disabilities, they've missed out on sex education. They've got massive gaps. Or these days they're gaining their sex education from porn, which has its own complexities to it. So my first point is to actually do an assessment of sexual knowledge. And you start right from the basics. You know, does somebody know the difference between public and private places? Do they know public and private parts of the body? Can they name all those parts of the body? Do they know know, the function of the body, how all of our sexual reproductive organs work? You know, do they know what sex is? And, And there's a difference between, you know, sexual touching and sex in in terms of you know heterosexual sex and also then if they have same-sex orientation you know what that looks for them in terms of their sexual behavior as well and then all the rest of it do they know the law do they know the age of consent do you know what consent means do you know how to demonstrate consent do you know who by law we can't have sex with you think about the vulnerability of that if somebody with an intellectual disability might come and see me and they might say Yep, I know sex means that you have to ask and give permission. Yes, I know that you have to be 16. Yes, I know you have to be in a private place. But they think that all of those things, but they may not know that the law says you can't have sex with a support worker. You can't have sex with somebody that is paid to help you. That's the tip of the iceberg (laughs) of the starting point. But then, you know, sexuality is huge and it's not just about the act of sex. It's also about our perception of self. You know, what is your what is your identified gender? What's your sexual orientation? You know, do you understand how your body feels arousal? Because that's very complex for many people, knowing the difference of what it feels to kind of be, you know, horny and sexy compared to something else. 
you know, it's very, very broad what I do. And of course, as you were just saying, Michelle, every single individual who comes to see me is coming for a really specific individualised purpose. It must be such satisfying work, Jodie. I just, listening to you talk about it and how you would navigate each individual person's challenges, I guess, and to see them kind of transition through and have, you know, hopefully beautiful experiences based on you educating them, you know, them understanding what they can and can't do and maybe getting to know their bodies a bit better as well. Like, it must be really satisfying for you in all these years of working with these beautiful humans. I learn every single day. And so I'm constantly learning about how amazing we are just as people, you know, how we think and feel and sense the world and our expression, our communication, how different we all are. But I'm also learning every day about people's perception of sexuality or how diverse our sexuality is. You know, we are so diverse in how we seek pleasure, you know, how we understand, how do we navigate these things with one another? And we still live in a world where we're quite closed-lipped about it. So, you know, Mm. it's... I was going to say the conservatism, isn't it? Like, that's interesting. And when you bring in religion and, you know, everything else, it gets very complicated. Yeah. I might have some young person come and see me and they've got, you know, they may be having very, very sexualised language that they've learnt from the internet. But then I'll try and get them just to go through the basics of let's talk about how the body works. And if I say penis or vagina or vulva, they're like, oh, my God. You know, it's so funny, like, the you know, the difference in in what we think. I think we're living in a point now where we live in a very, very sexualised world, but there's massive gaps in people's education if they're learning about sexuality from the internet and specifically from explicit material. So there can often be really big gaps in what people know. Or, you know, as we were talking about, even with consent, so this great thing that's happening now where we've got affirmative consent, enthusiastic consent, which is absolutely wonderful. But, you know, for some people that I work with, they can't even initiate a conversation. So they may not even know how to ask. They have spent their whole life not being given choice. So if you have lived in a world where you have not been given choice... Yeah, like probably like food choice or, you know, what you want to do today versus, yeah, sexual yeah, experience. So if you have no, if you have never had the power of no or you can't express no, and that's a, that's a simple thing for all of us that we have a, having that knowledge that we can say yes or no. And if you live in a world where you have never, ever had anyone give you a choice that you and then they've followed through with your yes or no, then sometimes it's that basic of having to work with people to say you can say no, you have a right to say no, you know, you also have a right to say yes, you have choice, you know, this is choice is completely up to what you want. And often some people that I work with have spent their whole lives being so desperate to be connected with people and so desperate to fit in and, you know, they may have been isolated so they're very eager to say yes. So, you know, they might follow another person's lead and so then if you've had people that have said yes, to lots of other things, vulnerable to yes, then teaching somebody or supporting somebody to have the knowledge that in a sexual moment, in a moment where somebody's touching you, you can say no. <laughs> you know, it's about that assertive skill that sometimes has to be also developed. And assertiveness comes from self-esteem. So then if you think about that too, if you lack self-esteem or self-worth or you're struggling with your self-identity, then assertiveness skills follow through from that as well. 
So, yeah, every single day, Michelle, I learn something different. I'm doing something different. It's brilliant. Yeah, I, it's, um, yeah, as I say, it must be fascinating work. I'm intrigued as well because uh, you and your job, like, you know, we were just sort of talking before we came on air that you would have been a bit of a unicorn back in the day, like 30 years ago doing this sort of space and being a sexologist, you know, it's a little bit more mainstream. Well, I don't know mainstream, but, you know, I know a number of people that, you know, you see online and on Instagram and, and social media and stuff that are um, in this space and talk about it quite prevalently. But you would have always been a fascinating person to have at a dinner party. Do you get the most bizarre questions thrown at you? All the time, all the time. And, you know, sometimes I choose not to say to people, oh, what do you do? I choose not to say I'm a sexologist because people will often follow through with, oh, I know a friend of mine. You know, they, they want to ask those questions. But So, yeah, it can be really interesting in that way. Because back in the day when I first started getting into this area, if you said you were a sex therapist to people, it was really not a known job. You know, or there was very, very few people in this space. I mean, I'm really glad. Yeah, I think that stigma associated, people would think it's more sexual or to do with a sex worker, right? Yeah, there's still a great confusion. That's often why I would say to people I'm a sexologist rather than a sex therapist, even though they're one and the same. But the difference is, you know, a sex therapist is like a psychologist or a counsellor, but they specifically specialise in sexuality where sex workers are hands-on practitioners, where, you know, sex therapists, sexologists, no hands-on. <laughs> sex workers, hands-on. But, you know, in our world, we work very, very closely with sex workers and we often have what we call a triad, a therapy triad. So you'll have, you might have a client that may come and see me. So say you've got a young person that has had, or any person that's had a spinal injury, and so, therefore, their experience of sex and sexuality has been really changed and they may need to sort of know what their body does or how it works. Now, I can talk that. I can talk the talk. We can go through it talking. But, you know, there's incredible sex workers that are trained to work with people with a disability. You know, they're trained to work with people with physical disabilities. They're trained to work with people with cognitive disabilities. And they are incredible in this way. And it's it's not just about penetrative sex, you know, it, with a sex worker. It's a whole range of things, including intimacy, including, you know, supporting people to have an understanding of consent, including to kind of empower somebody in their own body or to explore what their function or dysfunction or positioning or... I think we have to break the stigma attached to sex work as well because the, I see sex workers as practitioners. They are really great practitioners. And, of course, there's an area of sex work where we know which is very exploitative and terrible, but there are many people who are doing this by choice and they are very well trained and they are providing an incredible service to the community. Yeah, I've always said that um, when people carry on about it, I'm like, it's, it's one of the oldest professions in the world for a reason. And uh, it comes down to a classic of, um, you know, supply versus demand. If there was no work for them, they wouldn't exist. So, uh, <laughs> you know, again, it's that whole stigma element, isn't it, where people carry on and like, clearly people use their services. So 
I'm curious when you use the term triad, maybe getting a bit explicit here, but literally, do you have to be in the room and talk through that with your oh, client Lord, and the no, worker? No, 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 no. Okay. No. Yeah, no, that would be very, that would almost be. I'm just having a visual. Yeah, no, that's where we see. So when, you, when you're talking about that way, it becomes like, it becomes a collaboration between the three of you. So I may have a client come and see me and talk about their concerns or their worries or the issues that they're having or whatever that may be. But I can only do talk therapy. When you're saying talk therapy, you know, you can use models, you can get supplied different aids, you can do all of that. You would refer the client to the sex worker, but you as a therapist would talk to the sex worker. So you would talk about the things so that instead of that person having to go in for a therapy session with the sex worker, the sex worker already has all of the information required about that person. So the person doesn't have to go in and once again put themselves in a vulnerable talking position. You know, some people I work with are non-speaking, so they may do everything through a computer or, you know, a voice system, an augmentative communication form, or they may um, have limited communication that a sex worker would have to sort of learn how that person communicates consent, consistent consent. So, yeah, no way am I ever going to be in the room. I, you know, it's not part of my bag just, to be in the room with just anybody. Just clarifying. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I was just having this visual when you were talking. I was like, wow, that's really interesting work. Um, do you predominantly work with people uh, like in the autism spectrum? Is that one of the sort of spaces that you have you know, really kind of gone into or is that sort of bit by accident through the show or? So, no. So prior to starting up my own business, I, you know, I've always worked with people with disability, but for probably 10 or 15 years prior to that, I, it's weird something specialised, but I spent a lot of my years working specifically with autistic people. So, you know, there's some people within the disability space that may have incredible knowledge about people with cerebral palsy or spina bifida or, you know, um, spinal injury. But my area, this is prior to working in the sexuality counselling, was really specifically working in an area specialising in education and counselling with autistic people. So, but currently, you know, autistic people are part of the cohort of clients that I have but I also you know see anyone with a cognitive disability or required brain injury um, people with mental health difficulties because sexuality is really impacted when we have medications that people receive or when people are in a manic phase or you know that our sexuality is really impacted with mental health difficulties as well so that's my kind of but yes autistic people are a big bunch of people that I see as a client group. Yeah, and I'm curious, I have a couple of friends that have young children that um, have autism. And when do you encourage, because obviously with kids that don't have a disability through school, they learn about sex ed at certain you know ages, etc. Is there a certain age that you encourage, whether it's parents or you know schools to educate children with disabilities as well around this space? Is that an area that you're trying to change, I guess, and make a bit of a, a move? Lifelong. Lifelong. So people forget that if you teach privacy to children, if you teach them you know the names of their body, early you know so I always say uh, instead of teaching you know head shoulders knees and toes we should be doing you know head shoulders vagina and toes you know we need it's kind of like why don't we talk about those parts of the body and so that that part of the body to kids is not something that we don't speak about 
I mean, we all know kids get that scatological humour where they hit an age where you just say bone and it's like, ah! So, <laughs> I mean, they're fascinating parts of the body to all of us. But, you know, so starting as young as possible, teaching young kids about privacy, you know, when a door's closed, we don't just walk in, we knock first. That's part of sexuality education as well. Consent is embedded very, very early on, you know, asking permission to hug somebody, having a choice if, you know, your aunt wants to give you a sloppy kiss, it's okay to say no to that. You know, that, so consent is embedded in very early as well. The One of the things you've got to realise is kids, typically developing kids will start asking questions. And they start asking questions around a time, even with pregnancy. So if you think in a world where some people may be having second babies when a child's four or five, then they start asking questions about that. But a child with a disability or an autistic kid may not initiate the conversation they may not ask the question so we've got to make sure that we're giving you know we have to teach in the moment or talk in the moment and make sure it's age appropriate I mean sexuality education needs to be age appropriate you don't step in with a four-year-old and start talking about you know oral sex but you definitely talk about that part of your body is yours and nobody should be touching it unless you give permission. Yeah, I interviewed um, Lael Stone. You know, Lael, she did um, sex education for years for teenagers and uh, she said to me, we asked, I talked about the sex education TV show on Netflix, um, you know, with Gillian Anderson, and she said, yes, all schools should just play that for their education, <laughs> like it's the best show. It covers all the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, really, it's really important that we're having much more open conversation. I always think even today... We're not keeping up. Our education system's not keeping up with young people. So, you know, if you go into any just run-of-the-mill high school, of course, sex education is embedded into the phys ed, or, you know, the PDHPE. I can't ever say that combination, but that part of the curriculum. But we've got young people that are accessing explicit material faster than, than we're able to talk to them about it. And then we go in and start with, this is a penis, this is a vagina, you know, and we're not talking about pleasure, we're not talking about consent, you know, we're not talking about how young people critically analyse porn. We're not doing it. And so we're becoming behind in the sex ed field about being able to keep up with young people. And so a lot of people of my age group, you know, older people, we think, oh, young people are really, really sexualised. But you know the most amazing thing? The, the stats are saying that young people of this generation, you know, the, the younger generation, upper teens, 20s, they're having sex less often than my generation. They're doing more things online. It's like sexualised stuff online, like sending nudes to one another and looking at porn. But they're not actually doing it. So I can get some young people that may have sent a nude to someone, but they've never held somebody's hand. So, you know, it's kind of also the fact that we need to rethink the way that we're educating young people so that we're actually talking about pleasure and intimacy and about how relationships grow. And, you know, if somebody's requesting that you do sexualise things online, what are the laws with that? Because flirting through sending nudes is pretty, you know, run in the mill for a lot of people that I see in that way but for some of my clients they can be very vulnerable to that because once again somebody might say send us a nude bang they just do it because they think that that's what they're going to get that person will become their boyfriend or their girlfriend if they send them a nude because that must mean they really love them you know so it's kind of you know breaking down all of those things as well and how do you tackle that then like with you know with porn being so prevalent 
So with your clients, and I'm thinking about, you know, young kids that everyone's trying to navigate this space, it's so complex now. How do you tackle that to say, oh, they've watched these shows and they think that's what sex is, but you've got to almost start again and say, well, that that is sex, but it's a different form, like especially graphic sex. I imagine that would be challenging. Now, there's some really great programs that are, that are out there about sort of teaching young people to critically analyse porn, and I take those programs and modify those for people with disability. So at the moment, there's a really great program that's actually, there's a Marie Crabb who has developed a program called It's Time We Talk. She's also now created a program called Porn Is Not The Norm and um, is currently doing a lot of training in this space and area. So It's Time We Talked is for, you know, typically developing young people, high school age young people, that Porn Is Not The Norm is actually a program designed for teachers and parents and to for pe- autistic people. So, you know, the difference in what an education would mean for that. I literally run through her programs with bits and pieces. But the essence of it is really getting a young person to think, when I'm watching porn, it's literally like going on a roller coaster ride. Yeah, it's making me feel great and it's really good, but our life isn't a roller coaster. You know, like it's about sort of going, what are we looking at porn that's not, real what I mean in one of the things I do with young people is that I'll show them like let's have a look at five minutes of Fast and the Furious and I'll have five minutes of all of those amazing car stunts and car chases and things that just can you know cars coming out the back of planes with parachutes attached to them and I actually get and say what is real and what is not and they can quickly say there's no way that can happen that can't happen that can't happen that can't happen and then I say right let's talk about porn because it is exactly the same. Let's have a look at what we're seeing in porn and understanding these are actors, this is acted. It is being done for our pleasure and our arousal and to give us an adrenaline rush and, you know, for us to have a sexual response, just like any other form of entertainment, but it is not the reality of what's going to happen when you're face-to-face with somebody. No, that's a great way to look at it and good way for us to sort of understand as well. But Jodie, um, Love on the Spectrum, the two seasons that you've been a part of, have, there's a reason why it's been so successful because it's such beautiful TV and amazing stories. Did it change your life being on that show? Oh, completely. Completely changed my life. Like Prior to that, you know, I was spending six hours a day, you know, seeing six clients a day in a therapy room, working it with individuals, and um, that was my life. You know, that's all I was doing. And then after that show, your name becomes known. And so all of a sudden it gave me a space and a way to be able to talk more openly with many more people about this and the importance of the importance of relationships. I mean, Love on the Spectrum wasn't about sex and sexuality. It was about relationships. And there was a, a long-held myth about autistic people that they didn't want relation. You know, they didn't want a boyfriend or girlfriend. They didn't want a partner. They didn't desire these things. And for me, Love on the Spectrum really blew that out of the ballpark to just say that is completely not right. You know, that that is not what autistic people desire or want in life. You know, we all want to connect. 
So, but yet everything about my world changed probably. I think I was saying to him before, Michelle, that it was like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time almost, if that makes sense. Like somebody just said to the production team, do you know Jodie Rogers? And I happened to be presenting at a sexologist conference in Sydney at the time. So just went in to meet them thinking I was going to help them to find some more participants, more autistic people for the show. And then they asked me if I'd be on it. And I was like, no, what? I don't want to be on telly. Like, there's no way in hell. But they, you know, originally it was, oh, it'll be on the ABC. You'll be on it for one episode for five minutes. And But it came out almost at the right time in the world. Not the right time because I think it would have always been successful, but it came out at a time we're about to go into lockdown. You know, it came, in Australia it came out in late 2019 on the ABC. It hit Netflix in 2020 when I think all of us were really looking for something that made us feel good about the world. It's so interesting. It was about autistic people. It was about autistic people going on dates and about autistic people seeking love. But so many people just said, oh, my God, that's me. Or I experienced that. Or that's what I feel like. Or So I think what it also did, it allowed many people who have never met an autistic person in their life or may not have known they've met an autistic person in their life, it really broke down some barriers to just say, oh, I get it. I've been there. So I think it did a beautiful job in just educating a few people that didn't know or hadn't known. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the conversations I'd have with mates around it as well. It's um, yeah, a fabulous show. And if anyone listening hasn't seen them, you need to uh, get on and watch them now. And you were saying earlier, it's been taken now as a US version. So it was an Australian show and then it's been um, sold as US rights, which is just great to hear the concept here. Now, Jodie, I could literally talk to you every day, but um, I'm conscious I've taken up so much of your time, but you you are so fascinating. You said you've been working on two books, you were telling me, and uh, which unfortunately aren't out for a little while, so we'll have to wait patiently. But tell us about the um, the two books that you have been massively uh, working on in the, uh, you know, in recent times. Yeah. So, you know, when you're saying, does it change your life? Yes, it does change your life. And after being on the show, you know, I was contacted by many, you know, do you want to do a TED talk? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? But one of them was, did you, I want to write a book. And I had never, ever thought about writing in my entire life, ever. <laughs> and, um, but I gave it a crack. And, <laughs> you know, the shock upon shock to me, it's, had international release so it's been purchased internationally by several publishers so it comes out early next year and it's a non-fiction book it's not about sexuality it's about relationships but it's specifically about autistic people but you know it's funny it's about autistic people but it's turned it upside down so it's actually about what autistic people have taught me about connecting not specifically, you know, but what hanging out with people with autism, autistic people every day has actually done for me and should do for all of us in understanding connection and belonging. So, yeah, that's the title of that book is How to Find a Four-Leaf Clover. Weird title, I know, but I'm a very quirky individual, so it had to be something quirky. That's beautiful. And that's about um, what autism can teach us about difference, connection and belonging. Yes. It takes a long time between writing and production. Takes a long time. And then the second book is if anyone's seen the show, Kelvin Wong, who was a young man on the first season, he's a really incredible illustrator. For Kelvin and I to stay connected with each other, I really just wanted a project for us to do. You know, I've stayed connected with every single person from the show and have friendships with all of them. But with Kelvin, I just said, 
you know, let's do something that he's interested in. So I said to him, do you want to, do you want to write a book? Thinking it was just going to be a project for the two of us. But that's also, um, we've just been contracted to publish that book as well. So that's a graphic novel that's all about dating. And it's called Let's Meet. So that will also be published, I believe, early next year. Beautiful. Jodie, what an absolute delight. You are an awesome human, got to say, and the work you're doing. <laughs> I'll get all teary, but the work you do, like you have such a positive impact on so many people's lives. So um, I hope you realise that. And uh, thank you from all of us. But really, thank you for being here today to um, chat through and help us understand, all of us understand about how to break these myths around um, sexuality with, you know, and disability. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Michelle. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. 